0: Hi everyone and welcome to Things We Said Today. This is a bi-weekly Beatles podcast where we discuss anything and everything about the Beatles together and solo and all things Beatles related as well. I'm Darren DeVivo and I'm from WFUV Radio in New York City, a non-commercial public radio station broadcasting at 90.7 FM, uh, 90.7 FM HD2 as well. And plus you could stream us on our website wfuv.org and download our app and listen there uh i've been on the air at wfuv now for almost 38 years uh and uh, obviously i'm a huge beatles fan and joining me as is the case on every things we said today are my good friends ken michaels and alan cozen now ken you know is a long time radio personality like yours truly i think ken's been doing it slightly longer than I have, and most of his 40, some odd years in broadcasting have uh, included a lot of uh, Beatles oriented programs. Ken's done a bunch of them and that's made up uh, 90, 95 percent of his of his career. Um, some, of, some of Ken's years behind the mic were spent at satellite at uh, XM satellite radio and he currently hosts the syndicated Beatles radio show. Every little thing, and he's part of the video cast. I'm sure a number of you have watched Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast. So I want to say uh, howdy to Ken Michaels. Howdy, a, Ken Michaels, a big howdy do to you?. <laughs> <And Divivo>. also, <laughs> thank you. And also Alan Cozen, the acclaimed writer, journalist, and music critic who has also spent roughly forty years writing met most of that time at the New York Times, writing about classical music and the Beatles, of course. And over the years, Allen has contributed to countless publications and can be seen today in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and, uh, and many more. Alan's written a bunch of books, including the Beatles, From the Cavern to the Rooftop, and Got That Something, How the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand, changed everything. Plus there's a bunch of other books covering a variety of topics, including classical music, and part one of a Paul McCartney book uh, that you've heard us talk about. So, uh, a big howdy to, to Alan Kozen. How are you, Alan? Great, Darren. How are you? All righty. And uh, before we get into today's topic, uh, you know what we usually do? We start things off with the latest in Beatles news and Beatles related news. So, I throw it over to my buddy Ken Michaels.
1: Well, uh, as I'm sure you have expected, we haven't done a show now for three weeks, so um, a lot of news has accumulated. And we're going to start with the sad news on the passing, as you know, of Ronnie Spector on January the 12th. Of course, uh, one of the legendary singers of the rock era, known for being the lead vocalist in her group, The Ronettes, and produced by Phil Spector with hits like Be My Baby and Baby, I Love You. The Ronettes actually were part of the Beatles' 1966 US tour, but minus Ronnie. Apparently, Phil didn't want her to go on the tour. She had a record contract with the Beatles company Apple and released the single of the George Harrison song, Try Some, Buy Some, in 1971, and as the B-side, the Harrison-Phil Spector song, Tandoori Chicken. And the original intention, actually, was for Ronnie to record an entire album for Apple with the hopes for it to be her big comeback. There were other songs recorded. Uh, Ronnie released an album in 2014 called English Heart, in which she covered songs from British invasion acts of the 60s. And she recorded the Beatles song, I'll Follow the Sun for that album. Um, And just going back to what I had mentioned, uh, the album for Apple, they did plan a full album. And in addition to those two songs, um, it is known that she recorded a few more. You being one of them, which George released also um, on his album, Extra Texture. So uh, Ringo Starr posted online. God bless you, Ronnie. Peace and love to all the family. Peace and love. Any of you like to comment about Ronnie Spector?
0: Um- Not so much directly about Ronnie Spector, but um, I think it was in 2003, I interviewed David Bowie at WFUV, and Bowie was promoting his album, Reality, and On Reality was a cover of Try Some, Buy Some. Right. And we got into a good conversation about it, because I thought it was such a, 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 sort of an odd song, not only for David Bowie to cover, but really anybody, it's, You know, it's a deep track in Harrison's catalog. And I'm sure a lot of casual music fans don't even know that, you know, the Ronnie Spector recorded the song as well. The single, I guess you could say it's kind of obscure. Very. (laughs) You know, yeah. So uh, we got to talking about it. And David Bowie didn't know that George Harrison had recorded a version of it. Um, uh, I told him it was on Living in the Material World. And I was like, how did you... How did you find the song? Well, I knew he had said he'd heard Ronnie Spector, uh, which I found even more fascinating because I said to him, that's a pretty rare 45. I mean, I, I think it showed up on the charts in the U.S. for like maybe a week or two and change. And who knows what it did in the U.K., but it wasn't a hit per se. And um, he had just stumbled upon it in seventy seventy one. 71, right. 72, 71, 71. Yeah, he stumbled upon it in 71 and he loved it and he never heard George Harrison's uh, version of it. But we, you know, uh, the whole thing was that uh, rather odd choice for him of a song for him to cover. Um, But uh, it's it's kind of like not directly related, but it's something that, of course, I'm never going to forget because that was that was kind of like the thing when the conversation. That was the uh, the thing that made made you relax a little more because we got into. The type of conversation where for a split second there, I was talking to a friend of mine, you know, sitting next to me in the car. Mm -hmm. You know, it got very casual from there. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, being a New Yorker, Ronnie Spector's royalty here and uh, her Christmas shows, um, I guess they used to to do them, I think at the bottom line. I know folks, uh, friends of mine who have seen her at the old BB, BB King's Blues Club. Right. You know, swore by going at Christmas time to see Ronnie Spector's Christmas show. And of course, uh one of the great records ever, A Christmas Gift for You, uh, which later was reissued on Apple as Phil Spector's Christmas album. Hmm. Um, and then was available for years after that under that title. That's uh, you know, we'll always keep Ronnie close to all our hearts. So rest in peace, Ronnie Spector. I'm fortunate that I got to see Ronnie Spector to perform, it's it's
1: either two or three times at Mohegan Sun and it would always be at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. I think she tailored her concerts around the Christmas songs, mixing that with her hits and I was just amazed at how her voice has how her voice was so strong still, like it hadn't shown anywhere, like it's the same singer from 1963 mm-hmm. doing Be My Baby and um, something I... <sighs> I didn't mention this on um, uh, uh, an interview that I just did on my YouTube channel because we were talking about Ronnie Spector. I wasn't aware of this until our friend John Montagna posted this on his Facebook page. But are you guys aware that on the Let It Be album, the original album, the inner groove, you will find the words Phil and Ronnie inscribed? oh yeah and let it be yeah and it's on both sides too hmm. yeah. so yeah, those I knew of you who have an that. original
0: copy yeah i knew that but had completely forgotten about it so too. when he posted that i saw that post mm-hmm. uh i was like oh i, I remember that mm-hmm. yeah i never looked that closely to the inner groove and now so who, it's like, reads, wow, it's a- who reads the inner grooves you know what i mean <laughs> Beetle Although fans. if you're a fan, <laughs> if you're a, if you're a fan of the Eagles there are messages in all of their albums in the inner groove that kind of link together as like an ongoing sentence if you have eagles albums i'm i'm sure it's better if they're closer to being first pressings there's phrases written in the inner inner groove i don't know if it's on both sides or one side mm. uh, you know whoever was in charge of doing the cutting i guess had a sense of humor
1: well thank you john montagna for pointing that out to us something i never knew and i also remember that when john recorded his rock and roll album which phil Spector, well in the beginning did the production for he said i just want to be ronnie if you remember <laughs> mm-hmm. meaning he just wanted to be the singer not a guitar player not playing any of, any other instruments just wanted to be the singer So, yeah, we will miss Ronnie Spector for sure. Um, Also, uh, I can't imagine anyone not knowing this, but just in case, um, the Beatles performance on the Apple rooftop uh, will be shown in IMAX theaters across the country on the 53rd anniversary of the concert, January 30th. Now, I've been told that tickets went on sale and it is reserved seating for this IMAX event. Um after that, well actually I should say theres there's a q and with Peter Jackson that's a part of this whole thing. I'm not sure how that's coordinated, but um, after that, the Apple Rooftop concert will be shown in select movie theaters uh, for three days, February 11th through the 13th. And there is now a release date for Get Back on DVD and Blu-ray. And that's on February the 8th. Unfortunately, there's no mention of bonus material because there but, um, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> what's that? I said, because there isn't any.
2: Yeah. It's just, it's just I, I... three episodes as we saw them. And uh, you know, well, we heard it first on our own show. Peter Jackson said that they weren't interested in, in, in bonus material. And, and uh, I guess that basically is, I think what he was telling us is that that, that basically is why it went from six hours to eight hours because, he felt that they're not going to want the bonus material. I'm going to put the bonus material right in the, the original thing. Mm-hmm. But well, of course, you, now Peter. that that was the
0: original thing, we want more
2: bonus material, don't we? Yeah, I know.
0: <laughs> I think Peter, wasn't Peter sort of holding out hope that there might be like a last minute change that yeah. they could have extended, maybe to 10 hours or something. If it came out, it was still a little bit of an, if it came out. On Blu-ray
2: yeah. or DVD? Yeah, he. Um, I think he said he was still going to continue arguing it with them. But I, I, my impression, like from the talk, is that I don't think he thought that the release on Blu-ray and DVD was that imminent. You know, I mean, this is really it's sooner than I thought it would be. And um, yeah, yeah. It, you know what? I here's think- here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> Disney is putting this out, but the rights to the film are owned by Apple. I have a feeling that Disney will have the Blu-ray and DVD for a while, and then it reverts to Apple, and then Apple can do what it wants. And if they want to put out something with extra material or, say, the a, an additional cut of the rooftop without the street scenes and police scenes, uh, possibly packaging the original Let It Be in the same set, which is one of the other things mm-hmm. Peter Jackson talked about um that you know that can happen then whenever that future thing is so we can look forward to buying it again (laughs) um but you know maybe when it comes out again it will be in an expanded form of some kind i i'm sure if peter jackson has his way it will be
0: so um do you think it, it gets pulled off disney plus After it's out on Blu-ray and DVD, maybe not
2: immediately. I I don't know what the you know it depends what the terms of the contract are. Uh, It it could be that it it runs for a year, or or however long. Whether the the Blu-ray is out or not, you know it's uh, it's odd though that they that they are doing it so soon. I I just hadn't been
1: prepared for that. It's fine with me. Yeah, I was shocked. Yeah, (laughs) I was shocked. And I also, I was always under the understanding that the original Let It Be would be reissued fairly close in time with the Get Back DVD Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of hoping that sometime this year they would do that. And like you said, they could add bonus material to that too. Mm-hmm. So we'll see.
0: They are actually we- are planning right now the huge $2,000 box set that's going to come housed in... Uh, A box that is made from the wooden planks that were put on the roof itself uh, for the performance. And if you're lucky, you'll get one that's got Paul McCartney's skid mark from his shoes uh, on it.
1: That will be the rarest one, the rarest Mm -hmm. version. But you're giving them great ideas.
0: You know, I get a free copy if you use my idea.
1: All right. Uh, the Beatles on website, thebeatles.com, They're selling the DVD. You can order it right now for $34.99 and $44.99 for the Blu-ray. As of today, we're doing this on January the 18th. This taping. Taping. This session. Uh, the DVD is selling on Amazon for $27.99. And the Blu-ray is not listed yet. Although I'm sure it will be.
2: The newest reissue. Eight
1: hours, you know. Oh, no. Very well worth it. Yeah, you get your money's worth. Mm -hmm. Uh, The newest reissue of A Hard Day's Night, the movie, has just come out from Criterion. Mm -hmm. This is in uh, 4K UHD Blu ray combo as two discs. Also, a DVD Blu ray combo, which is three discs and just a DVD for one disc. And it's got loads of special edition features that just came out. More exciting news is that there's already a website devoted to the upcoming archival release for John and Yoko and Elephant's Memories album sometime in New York City. No information has been offered yet other than it's being billed as the Ultimate Mixes for 2022. This year, of course, marks the album's 50th anniversary. Will it be coming out soon? You would think so since the the website was just developed. If they want to follow its release close to the actual anniversary, that would be in June. Also due out in February is the tribute album to Yoko Ono called Ocean Child Songs of Yoko Ono featuring various artists covering Yoko's material. The album is being curated by Death Cab for Cutie's Benjamin Gibbard and will feature the band Death Cab for Cutie along with David Byrne and Yola Tango, covering Who Has Seen the Wind. Other artists include Deerhoof, The Flaming Lips, Sharon Von Etten, and others. The album is actually due out on Yoko's 89th birthday, which is February the 18th. So, very busy month for Beatle fans coming in February.
0: And WFUV is playing the David Byrne and Yola Tango song. Cool. What do you think of it, which is who has seen the wind? Thank you. I was going to say, listen, the snow was falling. I always got those two mixed up. Uh, But yeah, so uh, we're on that one. So that's very cool. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I always love all these cover albums and current artists of today, you know, showing that Yoko was an influence and admiring her work. Um, I just finished recording an interview with Bruce Spicer, Al Sussman and Tom Jones from my YouTube channel, Ken Michaels Radio. All of us discussing the Get Back documentary, and Bruce revealed that he will have another new book coming out in the fall covering the Beatles' Rubber Soul and Revolver albums and everything in between, including <laughs> the Yesterday and Today album. A popular feature of his books that uh, commemorate Beatles albums is that he takes memories from fans about these albums and what was going on at the time, and he puts them in the book. If you would like to contribute something for Bruce's new book, you can contact him uh, at his website at beetle.net. And the deadline to send him something is February the 15th. His book coming out in the fall. Just recently being leaked out on the internet is a performance from the Beatles dated April 5th, 1963 at the EMI house. This was a private performance For record company executives uh, of the group doing two of their big hits at the time, From Me to You and Please Please Me, this was done to celebrate the award for their first silver disc for the single of Please Please Me. I've heard it. Sounds just like (laughs) the Beatles at that time. Very clean recording, too. Yeah. Uh, Philip Norman is best known to Beatle fans for writing the Beatles biography Shout. And more recently, a bio for Paul McCartney. It does not rest there. John Bazzini tells us that he has a book coming out on George Harrison titled Dark Horse in Search of George Harrison, which won't be out until 2023. The Grammy Awards are being postponed due to COVID. Paul McCartney is nominated for two awards for Best Song with Find My Way and Best Rock Album for McCartney Three and george harrison's 50th anniversary edition for all things must pass is also up for a grammy best boxed or special limited edition package a few more news items here edgar winter has been busy for several years playing a tribute album to his late brother guitarist johnny winter a new album was due out in april to be called brother johnny and it will include 17 tracks handpicked by Edgar and producer Roger Hogarth, including two new songs from Edgar. And this tribute will have a star-studded cast of musicians helping out, including Ringo Starr, Michael McDonald, Joe Walsh, Steve Lukather, Joe Bonamassa, Keb Moe, and others. And the Liverpool Echo is reporting that Jerry Marsden, the legendary singer, who was lead singer of Jerry and the Pacemakers, who sadly passed away last January at the age of 78, will be honored by his hometown. The Mersey Ferry Terminal at Liverpool's Pierhead will be renamed the Liverpool Jerry Marsden Ferry Terminal. Jerry's classic hit, "Ferry Cross the Mersey, is still played on the ferry every day. And Jerry was also given the Honorary Freedom of the Ferries Award in 1985 in honor of his special connection. So it's nice to see Jerry honored there. Of course, part of uh, the NEMS family, managed by Brian Epstein, produced by George Martin. Nice to see Jerry uh, honored
0: that way. I rode on uh, Ferry Across the Mersey. I don't know if it's the only ferry they have running. Uh, I don't know. But uh, 1994, my honeymoon, we ended up uh, in Liverpool towards the end of our two weeks in England and I was on a ferry going across the Mersey, and of course, I sang the little pieces of the song that I knew to my wife, who immediately <laughs> thought, What the heck did I do marrying this putts for? Who sing, <laughs> who's singing Jerry and the Pacemakers to me on a ferry in Liverpool?
1: So, she, did you manage to get an audience there for your singing? Or no, but a few backing people,
0: away. She asked, it, and A few people asked it. Here's a nice word. A few people did come up to my wife and, and offered to throw me overboard, but, um, you know, she didn't feel like explaining back home to what happened to me. So she said, no, leave him alone. He's all right. We'll give him his meds and he'll go to sleep soon. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the news. That's Oh, no news. That's, that's fit, fit to print. To print. Yep. yep. Nice. All right. Thank you, Ken. Uh, that was very newsy. Uh, and now we move on to our topic for the show. Uh, which is misconceptions about the Beatles. Uh, and and I, I guess also could some of those misconceptions could spill onto some of the individual work and whatnot. Um, we had a, a debate, the three of us did, in planning um, this show out uh, about things that we've heard over the years rumors, um, fake news, uh, and other things that maybe actually. Some people think are real and have become fact over time. We're here to shoot them all down or back them all up. One or the other. So do you want to start, Ken?
1: Um, Well, uh, one of the ones that I would like to bring up um, is actually kind of a two-part thing. Um, Every now and then I hear it being said that the Sgt. Pepper album was really a, a Paul McCartney album. Or a Paul McCartney, George Martin album. And I've also noticed over time that a lot of people are giving John, I think a lot less credit where I think he deserves a bit more credit. Um, and to expand on that, and I'll discuss it, you know, a few minutes later that the last half of the Beatles recorded career as a group, that it was a McCartney dominated mm-hmm. period. Um, I can understand why people feel that way uh, discussing, uh, sergeant pepper when you look at things from the standpoint of songwriting i think that paul wrote more than john did but if you break it down song by song i think john's input as a songwriter was more than we give him credit for we all know that he wrote lucy in the sky with diamonds he wrote well most of being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, we don't know how much Paul wrote, but Paul did say he helped pick out the lyrics from the poster uh, with John. We know that John wrote Good Morning, Good Morning, and that John wrote a substantial portion, whether you think it's, you know, most of the song of A Day in the Life. But also along with that, with Little help from My Friends is a joint collaboration between the two. I don't know... If we know if it was exactly 50 50, but I do know that John had input in the songwriting of that song. And also, in the case of, say, getting better, you may have heard about this before, but John did come up with the line, <laughs> couldn't get much worse. Paul has rarely mentioned that, but you know, um, in addition to that, uh, John did say it might have been in Playboy that the line, I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved, that that came from him. Also, where she's leaving home is concerned. The counter melody that we gave her most of our lives came from John. That's a very important part of that song. makes a huge difference in that composition. Um, So once you add all that, I believe, yeah, Paul still wrote more than John, but not overwhelmingly. You know, it's a little bit more balanced. I think when it comes to the songwriting, give Paul the credit for the concept of the album. That you know, this was a band, you know, in the guise of another band. We could be someone else. You know, um, I think Paul deserves a ton of credit for it, uh, Sergeant Pepper, but I do think that sometimes you know not enough credit is given to john's contribution when it comes to the writing on that album would the two of you like to uh
0: add your opinions on this um you want to you want to go first alan sure um
2: i could um argue the other position in a way. I mean, what, what you say is true. I mean, it, and, and, and when you put it that way, it um, it really does uh, show John to be notably more involved than people often think. But the fact that the concept of the album was Paul's, I mean, that's that's, I think, one of the things that make people feel that Pepper is more of a Paul album. Um, And John in his interviews sort of has talked about Pepper as more of a Paul album. Um, But um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I think to sort of pull back from Pepper itself um, and, and look more broadly at the Beatles, 1966, 67, Um, you know, you're seeing John, um, as, as as Cynthia has said, get more involved with acid and that as he got involved with acid, that, uh, that sort of changed his personality and the impression that you get just looking more broadly is that one of the things it did is it made him a little lazier about Beatles stuff. I mean, the fact that he wrote all of the things that you mentioned, um, may sort of indicate that he wanted to retain control of the Beatles on some level, but just wasn't that interested in getting it together with the songwriting. Um, that said, the Pepper Sessions did begin with "Strawberry Fields Forever," which is you know one of his greatest things, you know one of the mm. Beatles' greatest things, um, one of the greatest things of human sieve. not, you know, go too far. Um, but, uh, you know, and so he, they did start off the sessions with one of his, he did come in with something that, you know, but he had just been in Spain making a film. Um, it doesn't seem like being an actor was something he really wanted to be, but the fact that he was willing to try it sort of indicates that, 66, as she was sort of looking around for other things to do Um, while Paul was coming up with things like the concept for, you know, let's let's be another band, you know, and the other Beatles seem to have bought into that, um, you know, and they made the album and the album really was something special. Um, and John's contributions, John's contributions to it are really kind of interesting. There is a day in the life which is brilliant. And there's Lucy, which is brilliant. But good morning, good morning. He basically did from a cornflakes commercial. Um, and as we know, the, the benefit for Mr. Kite was from a circus poster. The interesting thing about that for me is that, okay, he, he's kind of, you know, being a little lazy about songwriting and coming up with and just pulling these ideas out of the air. But what he does with them is so astonishing. I mean, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, it doesn't matter that the words are mostly from a circus poster. That's an incredible piece of music, you know, um, and, you know, and good morning, good morning as well. You know, I mean, there's you know, he's got the the cornflakes thing. Good morning, good morning. and that's that was the the impetus of it. But you know, nothing to do to save his life, call his wife in. I mean that, that's not nothing, you know, it, it, it it's he 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 filled that out. You know, it may start as a mundane idea, but he made it into really a, a, a pretty cool song. I mean, I'm not going to put it on the level of a day in the life necessarily or or mm-hmm. strawberry fields, but it's you know, it's uh, it's good. I like it, you know, and, uh, you know, Paul's contributions too. to I mean, Paul's contributions on that album you know, include reaching back to his childhood for something like when I'm 64. Um, And, you know, and that might've been because of Strawberry Fields, really, you know, and we lose that link because Strawberry Fields was taken away and put out as a single, but you know, Strawberry Fields was talking about you know John's memories of childhood in in some way, or or you know the the reference to Strawberry Fields itself. Um, uh, and when I'm sixty four, it might have just put Paul in mind of you know that little thing he wrote in Liverpool when he was like fourteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as something that could be sort of revived for this, if it, if it was going to be a, a sort of Liverpool themed album at first, which it didn't turn out to be. And I'm not totally convinced that it was ever meant to be. Um, I have heard Mm. people like Bill Harry claim it was, but Bill Harry, I don't know, was like, you know, there in those sessions, you know, hearing about, about that and, you know, why he, why he says that, Um, but those two songs, Strawberry Fields and When I'm 64, kind of provide the start of a link to, you know, what could have been a liverpool theme thing. So anyway, yeah, I, I, I do think that Paul was beginning to take the reins a bit, but um, I, I see it more as because he recognized that they needed something else, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that John was at that point happy to just sort of hang around at home making weird little tapes for himself. And, you know, the, what were the Beatles going to be doing? They weren't going to be touring. You know, they were kind of at a weird place in, at the end of 1966 and someone had to take the reins and
1: Paul did it. So. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned um, John being, um, you know, involved with how I won the war as an actor It was then when he admitted He was thinking for the first time What would I do if I didn't have the band mm-hmm. And actually when you're talking About Strawberry Fields Forever I always thought that that if anything Inspired Penny Lane Maybe more so than when I'm 64 Writing the lyrics for that Because Indeed. it's all about mm-hmm. you know memories of growing up In Liverpool and certain mm-hmm. sites In Liverpool that you remember right. um, So you got three songs <laughs> That tie together yeah but my point is with sergeant pepper i think that you know john should be given a bit more credit songwriting wise when it came to driving the band yeah you noticed that the second half of their time as a band paul was the one that was always trying to come up with ideas and
0: driving the band for new projects and all um darren hi no i'm <laughs> kidding. um My opinions are exactly the same as both of you, but I want to lean a little bit more, a little off Sojourn Pepper, more towards the general perception that that Paul was the heavy or had become the heavy during the later years. And it kind of, my opinion sort of, you know, echoes what what Alan just said. I just think McCartney was more focused as a Beatle. Focused being a Beatle, I mean. Uh, that was it for him. So he was writing at his best at that point. I think also think that the uh, tail end of the 60s McCart- was McC- one of McCartney's peaks and maybe the peak when it came, came to creativity, songwriting and whatnot. Um, uh, I mean, you could maybe come up with another era or two. That's not the point. But while Paul was, was peaking at that time, I think John's attention was taken away. It wasn't 100% on the Beatles. Right, he had met yoko he found that there was more to life than just being a beetle there were other outlets if he's thinking when he was making how i won the war what am i going to do if i didn't have the band well now he's finding out he can make films with yoko he can tap into that artist um side of him that he had going back to when he was a boy in liverpool writing poetry and drawing pictures um and it didn't have to be conventional art it could be anything he didn't have to make his own uh, he didn't have to write his own songs or make his own albums he could twiddle with the knobs on a tape deck and come up with an album and that was fun and you know i've i've messed around with tapes and stuff it can be a lot of fun mm-hmm. uh, i don't know anybody that wants to listen to it after i've made loops of uh, belches and stuff like that but but no, these were the things that, 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 that I think that John found value in. And, and that took him away from, you know, if he was going to write, uh, had a quota of 10 songs, maybe he was only going to come to a session with six or seven as a result of that. Meanwhile, you're in a band with Paul McCartney, who's got it all invested into the group uh, at that point. Uh, and I think it can be as simple as that. Yeah, Paul probably was a heavy I don't think he was uh, the be-all, end-all of Sgt. Pepper, all for the exact same reasons that all of you pointed out. And even George, whose input was minimal on Sgt. Pepper, what he did input was massive. Um, you know, the just the Indian influence to to the vibe of the album mm. alone is enormous. Um, so uh, I, I think it, is, it isn't a misconception that Paul sort of dominated Pepper, or Pepper was a bit more of a Paul album. And those later years were McCartney-driven, um, you know, lack of a better way of putting it. But I do think that Paul was 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 the heavy because he was peaking at that point. And again, I think John's attention was, was elsewhere. And I think we sort of saw that in the movie, in the Get Back movie, how John could come in and out of focus uh, when it came to the, to the Beatles. Hmm.
1: I think some that's something thing that we, go ahead. Some excellent points there, Darren. And, and we can debate,
0: you know, when was Paul's creative peak? We should do a separate show. Yeah. Just on that. I think that that was, I mean, he was really, I mean, you look at it. I mean, I, I don't know what the, the, we don't know. We'll never know exactly what the dynamic was between John and Paul as writers you know, when when they were, were writing songs, sitting down, talking about, listen, I have this, I have this song, or, you know, um, you know, Paul's pumping out things like The Long and Winding Road and Blackbird and writing Goodbye for Mary Hopkin and uh, Come and Get It, and then there's uh, uh, Let It Be, and there's all these incredible songs. Uh, maybe John thought at writing right now I can't keep up with this guy, you know? Uh, so here's what I got right now. Knock yourself out. Um, I'm going to go make a film about a fly, Uh, you know, I'm (laughs) making a joke, but at the same time, you know, John had other places he could go channel his energies and that really exploded in 68. That would have been after Sergeant Pepper, but, um, You know, by the end of 1968, opportunities were popping up for John. Right. Um, You know, that weren't there, that Paul didn't need, didn't need them. He had his, he was a Beatle. That's all Paul needed at that point. Same could be said for George. You know, Hmm. I think we talked a lot about this, you know, on, in previous shows, especially talking Get Back. George also found his outlet and realized, I don't have to put up with, maybe getting them to pay attention to one or two of my songs, you know, or my song doesn't have to take the back seat to wild honey pie. You know what I mean? That, Mm -hmm. That, that doesn't have to be like that anymore.
1: Right. I'm only where John and Paul are concerned. I'm only talking in terms of the actual songwriting and what they released. I mean, if you break it down as some people might like the red and the blue album, 1960, 62 to 66 and 67 to 70. I don't think that Paul dominated the group from 67 to 70 the way that John dominated the songwriting from 62, well, certainly through 65. Once you're getting into Revolver, it's very balanced between the two of them. But I think that people have a misconception about the second half of the beatles that it was more dominated by paul and i think a lot of that is due to the fact that many of the a sides of the singles tilted towards paul although you still had come together and the ballad of john and yoko and all you need is love right. for john songs and all that but if you were to go song per song on every single album you would find that it's a little bit more balanced between John and Paul songs, I actually went, because I always said to myself, you know, the White Album is so Lennon dominated, and it's not. (laughs) There's a difference of two songs between John and Paul. It's, It's much more balanced between the two of them. But I do think overall, yeah, McCartney had more input in the songwriting the second half, but it wasn't as the way that John was in the early years. From sixty to sixty-two to sixty-five, I'm only talking songwriting here. Yeah, I kind of think when people say that Paul dominated in the second
2: half or the second the end of their career from Pepperon, that that they don't mean just the songwriting. That they mean that he became sort of the the de facto leader of the group because mm. John had in some ways tuned out. But um, whether or not John tuned out, I mean, it's another interesting thing that like another one little piece of the puzzle that comes from the, the get back film is that discussion just before the rooftop when Paul is saying, well, but if we just go play the thing on the roof and that's the end of the film and it, it's just that we now have a film about us making an album. You know big deal and John says well making an album is what we do you know um <laughs> but but if you you take that bit of conversation and you put it together with Paul wanting to you know coming up with the idea of like let's pretend that we're a different band and that way we can sort of break out of the whole Beatles thing and then right after that what let's go get, you know, some cameras and a bus and go touring around England with no script and Mm -hmm. just you know, film it, that'll be different for us. And it definitely was different for them. Um, And then uh, White Album, I can't see any particular Paul leadership there, but then immediately after the White Album, the idea of, okay, let's do some concerts to promote this, which morphed into uh, get back slash let it be. Um, So Paul was taking the initiative and wanting to do something different than just going in and making an album if they're you know if we're not going to tour is is that just going to be it we convene for an album every few months or once a year and and that's it. No, I want to do something more interesting. I want to mm-hmm. go film around the country, or I want to write an album of new songs and play it and record it live, you know. Um, and I think he you know, he definitely was, I, I don't think it can be argued that he was coming up with those ideas, you know that He was coming up with ways of breaking out of the, you know, we're a pop group, we go in and make albums mold. You know, so in that sense, I think it's it's fair to say that you know he sort of took over the leadership, even if the songwriting was, you know, not dominated by him necessarily. That's that's the way I always took it when people say that you know about Paul dominating the
1: uh, last bit. Okay, well, those are excellent points.
0: I knew this would be debatable. (laughs) One thing you can't debate is that. Pretty much everything the Wings did was dominated by Paul. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, so uh, now that was uh, that Ken is thinking, I did have the idea to have him on the show. (laughs) Uh, All right. So that was a Ken thing. Alan, do you have a a misconception that pops into your head that um, we want to discuss You know what? um, You still
2: run into a lot. And in fact, in in one of the comments on one of our shows, someone actually brought this up and said, you know, and and, and I don't think it had anything to do with us because we haven't discussed it. But it it was may So maybe it was just a comment on Facebook. But it was something like, uh, you know, why do people still tell the story of you know george martin discovering the beatles and you know everyone else turning brian epstein down and then george martin hearing something he liked in the music and deciding to give them a chance when it didn't happen that way um and i and i think that remains the standard telling but as we know from tune in uh the first part of mark lewison's trilogy uh it didn't happen that way at all. I mean, it, George Martin had already turned them down. Um, and, you know, the what's often said is that George Martin was on vacation when all the other EMI producers turned them down, but then he came back and listened and heard something, but he had turned them down like everybody else. And um, the... Uh, the story that, that Jim Foy, the uh, disc cutting guy at the HMV shop, sent him on to George Martin sort of changes a, a detail, which is that he actually sent him on to Sid Coleman at Ardmore and Beechwood. And Ardmore and Beechwood was EMI's publishing arm. Um, and Sid Coleman and uh, Kim Bennett, who was a song plugger for Ardmore and Beachwood, really liked uh, Like Dreamers Do and maybe some of the other originals that were in the Decca tapes, which is what Brian brought around to them to play. And Brian basically said, well, you know, if you can, uh, you get them a recording contract, which was his main interest, Where while well, their main interest was publishing songs, um, you can have the publishing. Um, and Kim Bennett uh, apparently, you know, and, and here's a guy whose name until tune in, nobody knew, you know, he basically took the bull by the horns, so to speak, and uh, basically went to EMI, uh, was told again by all the producers, no, we heard them. We don't want them and went up to, you um, Ooh, it wasn't Joe Lockwood Uh, went higher up the chain. Uh,
1: um, Len Wood.
2: uh, Len Wood. Len Wood. Yes. Uh, And persuaded Len Wood uh, to have EMI record a single of some of these originals by this group, um, because after all, Ardmore and Beachwood is their publishing arm. Why don't they work together on this? And uh, basically what happened was that uh, George Martin had two things that were irritating Len Wood. One was that in his recent contract negotiations, he was pushing for a producer royalty, which was pretty much unheard of. And it was especially unheard of when he was pushing it, which was, you know, you can understand George Martin pushing for a producer's royalty in 1963 or 1965, but this was before the Beatles were there. He still wants a a production royalty. um, And EMI found that really irritating. And the fact they found out that um, he was having sort of a romance with his secretary, Judy Lockhart. Um, who he eventually married. Um, but the idea... He,
1: he was married at the time, too. He
2: was married at the time, but I think they were splintering. Um, the fact that this was going on um, offended Len Wood. The fact that he wanted a producer's royalty offended Len Wood. And so as punishment. <laughs> this is like the great aspect of this story. As punishment, he was given the Beatles to record. Um, and you get a sense of, I mean this is one, once Mark Lewison ran into Kim Bennett, and I'm not exactly sure how that happened, but um, he also got verification from other people that oh yeah, that's that's actually, how it happened. I think Norman Smith um, was one of the people who uh, confirmed that for him. Um, And he also told me that, uh, you know, he really sort of put uh, Kim Bennett's feet to the fire, you know, for details and, you know, looking for any kind of contradictions or anything wrong with the story. And, um, but basically ended up getting it verified. Uh, and and this was something, this is one of the things in TuneIn in that nobody knew anything about and a lot of the world seems not to have caught up with yet, even though it's been out for nearly a decade. And by the way, Mark, where's volume two? Um, <clears throat> um, so, you know, it, but but it puts puts another piece of the story, it clarifies another piece of the story, which is that we had heard like long ago and I think it's even mentioned in the Mark Lewisohn's recording sessions book that um George Martin didn't initially come to the Beatles artist test recording session. Um, He left it in the hands of his assistant, Ron Richards. And it was only after they'd been playing for a while that Ron Richards sent a note down to the canteen where George Martin was just hanging out. So obviously not like doing anything really, really important that made it impossible for him to go to the session, sent him a note saying, you know, there's, you really want to come and hear this. And then he came and heard it. And, you know, the rest is more or less history. We'll hear how the history changes as further uh, research goes on. But, um, But, you know, in a way, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the story as everybody has wanted it to be um, isn't what actually happened and, and, and this is what happened instead. I mean, do any of us feel uh, any less about George Martin
1: because of that?
2: I don't think so. No,
1: yeah. but you know, the thing that I fa- found asto- st- astounding about this whole thing is that the Beatles never attempted to record like Dreamers do Yeah. at EMI. If that was the song that Ardmore and Beachwood were so interested in, Then why didn't they do it yeah i don't know and i also thought and
2: and why did george martin try to get them to do how do you do it if the point was for them to be doing their own stuff so that ardmore and beachwood could publish it yeah strange
1: yeah i thought that when mark's book came out that this would be front page news (laughs) on newspapers I mean, the way that we've been brought up to believe how the Beatles got their record contract is nothing to what the truth really was. And I think that the Beatles themselves never knew it. Mm-hmm. They didn't know this whole backstory. They probably didn't.
2: Um, Brian, of course, would have. Brian Epstein. Um, and, you know, and there, then another interesting thing comes out of this. George Martin seems to have felt that being punished by Len Wood isn't something he necessarily wants to put up with. So because Ardmore and Beachwood was involved in this whole setup, he steered Brian Epstein towards Dick James for publishing and Dick James ended up, um, you know, realizing that he, this was a competitive business and he needed to come up with something. He came up with the idea of Northern songs, um, which John and Paul would own a portion of and, uh, you know, and made it a, a very tempting thing. And so poor Kim Bennett and Sid Coleman and Ardmore and Beachwood are basically written out of history. You know, they got the publishing for Love Me Do you know, and I guess, P.S., I love you. And that was it, you know. Um, And then they're just out of the picture. And they had worked really hard, got Brian Epstein what he wanted, which was a label deal for the Beatles. And then are just out
0: of it. That's stupid. Mm. And they then formed a band with Pete Best. <laughs> <laughs> what it, it also means
1: <laughs> is that you're always told that they auditioned for EMI on June the 6th, when in fact they already had a record deal anyway. Right. It was really their first session for EMI. It wasn't yeah. an audition. Well, they say it was an
2: artist test, but it, but it was, as you say, I mean, they had signed the contract a couple of days before. We we have a copy of the contract. Hmm. Um, that contract was signed before they, they turned up. And, um, you know, it basically... This is another. This is one thing that 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 Mark had been through with George Martin. You know, saying, "Well, how could you gave them a contract before you even heard them?" No, no, no. I I, I couldn't possibly have done that. Well, in that case, when did you hear them before June six? Well, I I think I went up to Liverpool and heard them at the Cavern. Well, okay, let's look at their calendar and your calendar and figure out when that could have been. And there was no time it could have been. You know. Um so, you know, George Martin didn't like the idea that once the contract became available, it showed that he had signed them before um, they came for that artist test or audition or for a session or whatever it was. Um, but he did. Now, if you look at the contract, it basically obligates EMI to virtually nothing. you know, So it's not as if he was giving away the store at Lenwood's command, um, you know, uh, it, it, it basically said that in the the course of a year, they were to record six sides or six songs, uh, which EMI could put out or not. And if they did, they get some fraction of a penny royalty, you know, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't giving away the store at all. Um, but yeah, there are so many of these details that, you know, it's it's one thing if you you have a pop band that you, when you sign it, you think it might be big for a couple of years and no one's going to be interested in all the details of how they were signed. So here's the official story of how they were signed. And then that became the official story. And now we know it wasn't quite like that. So and I think, you know, we're going to find that we're going to find that with a lot of stuff in the Beatles as more and more research is done um, seriously. You know, as people begin to approach this as a serious historical thing, um, we're going to hear that a lot of the stories that we thought we knew weren't quite right. And that's one of them. And it's right at the beginning. And it's uh, it's a big one, I think.
0: What's funny about that whole thing is something that we didn't talk about, not really part of this conversation, is how on earth were the Beatles rejected so many times? You know what I mean? What, what were, you know, I mean, we don't, I guess we, we can't really put an exact number on how many rejections there were, but it sounds like there were a lot. And within EMI, there was more than one. There were like five um, at EMI alone. <laughs> you know, like what were the Beatles doing that wasn't appealing to the so-called experts? And at the same time, um, you know, what were they listening for? What were they looking for? That's not this topic. That's not this show. But something that occurred to me, because I'd forgotten it wasn't just one rejection. It was, there was multiple uh, layers that they went through at EMI. Mm-hmm. Um.
2: well basically we know so, what they were listening to they were listening to pressings of the of acetate pressings of the Decca audition okay so maybe they felt that the novelty things like the searchers tunes were too corny or maybe they okay. you know who knows um, it's, it's you know it wasn't the deca audition is I, I think you know we all enjoy listening to it but it wasn't really the Beatles best inning
0: Right, right. Hmm. Okay.
1: But, you know, it's it's an interesting part of their history because Brian Epstein wanted to show the variety within the band, Mm -hmm. that they can do ballads and they can do rockers and they could do novelty records and also show that there's three lead singers here,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. you know, to make them very different. And, hey, here's three original songs, too. Right. You know, that was part of the plan. And from what I understand, Pete Best in particular thought that, you know, the way he approached it was all wrong, that they were a rock and roll band and they should have just done rockers and showcased that. Hmm. But part of the the Beatles appeal, as it turned out, was because of the variety of music that right. they displayed in their catalog.
0: Yeah. Eventually. So you know that they could they they could they could put something like Till There Was You, hmm. you know, right in there with their earliest songs so what else Um, yeah well i I think we have time for maybe one more uh of these uh, misconceptions and i could think of a few of them um the most obvious one which i don't know if you guys want to talk about this uh we can but it's been beat to beat to death i think we even really got into it recently yoko ono broke up the beatles it still flies around today and got a, a little life recently uh in the publicity that got kicked up for the get back film i mean you if you guys want to go through that uh again or we could uh maybe hit on something else i'll leave it up to the two of you but that might be the number one misconception if you asked the man on the street uh to come up with uh, something about the beatles that you know do you think this is true or uh do you think this is uh you know fake news Mm
2: mm-hmm
0: Alan, you want to take that up first or? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um,
2: I mean, I think, I I mean, I don't even know what to say about that anymore because it's, it's really kind of ridiculous, you know, except if you take the view that, um, you know, as we've have already discussed on this show that John wanted to work with Yoko, Um, whether that would have meant that uh, John would work with Yoko, but never work with the Beatles, uh, you know, who knows? You know, uh, as we saw in the to Get Back film, George talking about making an album of his own stuff. John was already doing that. He was putting a. He already put out Two Virgins, and of course, the brilliant Life with the Lions, um, uh, live piece in Toronto was not out yet, but was coming out soon. He was doing singles. He, you know, he he actually had it set up exactly the way George described in the let it be film or get back film um you know i can do some of my stuff and then we can still do the beatles john could have done that but um you know he was interested in doing other stuff he was interested in leaving the pop group thing behind um and I'm saying pop group thing from like his point of view at that time, based on what he was saying. But we know that by then they were far more than a pop group. Um, Still, you know, this is his emotional thing. This is the way he's looking at it. Um, He just wanted to make a break, whether he would have come back, who knows, you know, it's, it's conceivable, Um, but by then things had taken another turn to do with Alan Klein and uh, Paul's seriously not wanting to be represented by Alan Klein and his preference for the Eastman's Um, didn't see a lot of Paul pushing the Eastman's on the Beatles. Um, But, you know, he had brought them in and they were originally signed on to basically represent them legally. Um, and it could have been become more than that and possibly they would have all done better if it was, you know, but it's a tricky thing. You know, you, you don't necessarily want the in-laws of one of your partners to run your business. We were talking about this before the show. Um, but, I, but look at what, uh, what the Eastman's basically did for Paul. And, you know, and if, if the Beatles, all of them were his, were their clients too. You would think that um, they all would have benefited, whereas they had to sue Klein to get out of the, you know, to, uh, well, actually they didn't renew the contract with Klein and then he sued them and they had to sue to get out of that. It became a big mess that probably wouldn't have happened if they had gone Paul's way. But that has more to do with what broke the Beatles up than Yoko did. You know, right. um, I don't, I don't think Yoko, I don't think Yoko was there saying, yeah, John, you should quit this group and come with me and do our avant-garde stuff. I think that, you know, she was doing that stuff. John wanted to do that stuff too. And, uh, and, you know, it's up to him, you know, he wanted to do it. It's much truer to say that John broke up the Beatles, which, you know, he did.
1: Well put, well put. I would pretty much agree with just about everything alan just said there but i think kind of like what john said john and yoko was one name (laughs) he couldn't just blame yoko john wanted to be with yoko he was in love with her he was obsessed with her that kind of a love Mm -hmm. and i think that john was the type of artist who got bored very easily Mm -hmm. he didn't like formats He, you know, even though the Beatles, by nature, the fact that they were the biggest band in the world, they were given plenty of artistic freedom to do whatever they wanted to do. And even with that, John probably wanted more. And with Yoko, he saw the possibilities were endless. You can make anything you want to. You could put in an album of just silence if you wanted to. And that would be art. And that could be your next album. And I think this really fascinated him. And I think um even though John even admitted he didn't understand all of Yoko's art, he definitely thought that she was brilliant and he wanted to do more and more with her. And I think, you know, I personally think the biggest reason why the Beatles broke up was because John wanted to do more with Yoko. You know, and there's no doubt that the Klein versus Eastman thing played a very big part, probably was the nail in the coffin. Because honestly, you know, I think nothing ever hurt Paul more than the other three going against him there. You know, he's always said that everything in the Beatles had to be done unanimously, and the other three signed a contract against his will. You know, so um, yeah, you really can't blame Yoko for any of this. It's because John loved her, John wanted to be with her, John wanted to do almost everything with her whether or not they could have continued doing solo and the band at the same time which they did start to do anyway but to continue doing that for john to have pop records on his own and at the same time carry the band at the same time it's very difficult to do that you know (laughs) So I think it's ridiculous to blame Yoko at this point. There's no doubt about it that it was different for Yoko to always, always be there in the studio. Um, and and Paul was even acknowledging during the Get Back Let It Be sessions that you know he had to come to terms with the fact that he's in love with her, and he was fine with that, but he still wanted the band to continue. Right. He still wanted to work with John. Um, so I, I think it's really... It's crazy to ever say that, that Yoko was the reason why the Beatles broke up. It's interesting. Like,
2: one, one thing you said, you know, a few minutes ago about how John hated formats and he, you know, lost interest easily and all that. It, it it's, brings up another one of these Beatles mysteries. If that was the case, and, and I think you're right, I think it was the case. Why was it Paul who was saying, you know, we should pretend we're another band. We should go around making weird films and we should do a deal with, you know, recording a new album of new songs live in a concert. And and John is saying, yeah, but, you know, making albums is what we do. John is the one in that discussion holding out for the normal format, the same old thing. Paul is the one who is saying, let's do something completely different, but what we but as the Beatles and what we do, you know,
1: maybe what John was thinking was it's what we do with our albums that make all the difference. Mm. You can make changes in the music that you do. You know, I mean, revolution number nine, (laughs) how (laughs) radically different was that for an album at the time? And Mm -hmm. I'll bet John wanted to do more of that stuff.
0: Yeah. You know, I feel that in this discussion it's pretty obvious that the key player here is Alan Klein. And one of the eye-opening moments of Get Back is the I don't want to put it the wrong way but almost the 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 the, the way John was starstruck by Alan Klein from having met him. I guess the one time and And it it almost seemed as though John was like kind of in awe and even gullible that he was in one meeting with Alan Klein was sold Hmm. that Klein is otherworldly and he'll do such incredible things for us. There are those, I think, two instances where he's talking almost like Klein is uh, a divine thing of what he's capable of doing. And John was under his spell. I mean, I don't know if you guys agree with me, but John really was taken by what Klein had to say and seemed like he wanted others. You have to come hear this, 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 this prophet I met because he had, you know, he said these things. He could, you know, we'd make two albums from now. We'll own the company. And, you know, all these things... Um, And you see that, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a scene towards the end where John leaves the session. The session's pausing for the day. John's grabbing his coat because there's a meeting with Alan Klein. And in the, I guess, in the uh, upstairs. Mm -hmm. And John's making a beeline for the door. We got to go. I got to go talk to him. Got to meet Alan Mm -hmm. Klein. McCartney's nowhere to be found. Hmm. Almost as if Paul kind of knew, even before that, I don't even know if McCartney knew that Klein had spoke to John and John was enamored over this guy. Yeah, because, um,
2: because Paul wasn't there the, when John was telling George about the meeting. But right. John is also saying, you know, I don't want to say it all now because I want to tell you all together. Yeah. Um, but, but you could uh, see...
0: You, john's way he's talking to george it's like this guy i saw you know he came in the room and the heavens opened
2: he knows more about me than you do
0: (laughs) yeah yeah and when i was watching that it made me a little uncomfortable because i'm like um john don't you know how this is going to play out wait a minute i'm 50 years (laughs) in the future He, he, he Mm -hmm. he can't hear me you know even glenn johns was kind of right you know like okay john but 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 i know this guy he's you know he's with stones watch him uh and the way john went into the 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 possibilities of being in a relationship with uh alan klein told me listen this is the thing this is the thing that ended the beatles um and uh to, uh, to what extent George and Ringo were enthusiastic about Klein. We don't really know, but they were enough. They were enthused enough that they signed on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's, you know, but it's not sexy to say that. It's sexy to say the wife, a one yeah. mm-hmm. broke it up. Yeah, Could have been Linda. Could have been Linda. Could have been Linda. Six, she meets Paul six months earlier and is a more of a vocal personality more of someone in the spotlight if Jane Asher who was a who was a bit of a known uh celebrity i guess at that time uh well you know maybe they got married you know you'd have people today talking that to Jane Asher broke the Beatles up cuz he st- she stole Paul's heart and they got married and now that he was a married man he wasn't interested in hanging out with the boys anymore so uh, Yoko was an easy target, and I, you know, and Yoko's unfairly, and this angers me. A target in general for things like, you know, COVID. <laughs> you know, it, it gets ridiculous. You know, the 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 uh, hatred and the accusations that get thrown her away. It was easy to say that, oh, Yoko did it. Yoko was too responsible.
1: Yeah, well, but. The fact of the matter is, there were a lot of reasons why the Beatles broke up, yeah. and we could all debate which the number one reason is. And there's no doubt Alan Klein was a huge factor, but I still think that John wanted a new life with Yoko.
0: Yeah. Oh, I, I think agree that's.
1: I think that's even well, more important.
0: Think, don't you think that had Alan Klein not come around, it's very possible, and I think you kind of alluded to this. They could have kept going, and there was nothing stopping the four of them from you know doing what phil collins ultimately did decades later you know george could have very easily cut his solo album um his 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 all things must pass and john could have kept going on making singles and tape loop albums but if you if you were to take a look and i just discussed this in my my
1: video on my my youtube channel At all these bands, and there's only a handful of them where you could say individual members had successful solo careers, none of them nearly as close as what the solo Beatles had, but they were kind of short lived. You know, it was hard to maintain the case of Phil Collins, he had a solo career and the career with Genesis. And I think the fact of the matter is that because both of them were happening close, you know, at the same time, it created so much saturation of phil collins on the radio that it ended up killing both careers (laughs) (laughs) because genesis records started slipping in sales and gradually there was less interest in phil collins it was too much Mm -hmm. and when you're writing songs how do you know what belongs on a solo album versus versus a group album how do you know where to place it if you're doing a tour what songs do you do how much solo music do you do You know, the Eagles, individual members like Glenn Fry and Don Henley had successful solo careers. Joe Walsh, although Joe Walsh was a name before he joined the Eagles, you know, but it was some success, not a lot. And actually, the Eagles for a long time didn't even release an album as a group while the solo careers went on Uh, Fleetwood Mac. The same thing. It's very difficult to maintain that. It sounds good in theory, you know. But I think that had the Beatles tried to continue and still put out solo albums in the same year, you know, it, all these complications come up. Yeah. Where do you place these songs? Mm-hmm. Where does it belong?
0: Right. You know, if
1: it, there's a George Harrison song that he writes that's really more spiritual, that belongs on a solo album, but something that's more poppy and, you know, something more like Before You blue that belongs on a Beatles record. You know, how do you decide
0: where each one belongs?
2: I feel sure they could have worked it out.
0: (laughs) And and I think, I don't think so. In George's case, it would have been easy. He just could have gauged the reaction he was getting Mm -hmm. in the studio with the others and go, okay, solo album. That's a solo song. But, um, i don't know it probably was easier for george
1: because he would have been resigned to accept the fact that he was going to get less than john and paul right so just give a few songs for a beatles album. well
2: no wait. we we have this agreement where george was going to be getting as much as john and paul and but that never happened it never happened but that's how it could have you know, proceeded, and, and the other mm-hmm. part of that discussion that, you know, when they're talking about the idea of, a, of putting out a Christmas single that year is, you know, everyone bring in their, their best idea and we'll decide, we'll pick one. So it could have been like that too. And, and they could have come to a session, played some things. And like Darren said, you know, judged from the other's reactions, You know, whether this is going to be for the group or for solo and and it, it could have worked that way. I think, you know, the only the only way you really can blame Yoko in this scenario where, you know, John wanted to go off with Yoko and do that stuff is like you're blaming her for existing and meeting John you know, because she was not pushing this idea of him leaving the Beatles. If, if he left the Beatles because he wanted to be with Yoko and do stuff with Yoko of the style that Yoko was doing, that's on him. That's not on her. Right.
0: So, okay. (laughs) Ken broke up the Beatles.
1: No, don't put that on me,
2: please. (laughs) Ken broke up the Beatles because he wanted all those solo McCartney albums. Yeah.
0: All right, and, and
2: in the material
0: world. There you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could keep coming up with these because there's a there's a bunch of them here and uh, uh, of of these misconceptions. But uh, the clock is a ticking on the wall. I don't actually have a clock on the wall, but in theater of the mind. Uh, so it is, uh, just about time for us to uh, throw it around the room. And, uh, before, before I throw it to Ken for your, uh, information, Ken, uh, while we were recording about a half an hour ago or so, and you mentioned this in the news about the Grammys hmm. came the announcement of when the Grammys are now going to happen. Okay. So I figure that, you know, being that at the beginning of the show, we didn't know. Now we know April 3rd in Las Vegas, Were those those two little dings we heard? I heard those things, too. No, that's not what they were. Mm. Um, uh, Those uh, ding, I don't know what those dings were, but uh, maybe the dings in my head. Speaking of dings in the head, let's go over to Ken and uh, get your information, Ken. Give me that ding. Ding. (laughs) Uh, First of all, uh,
1: my YouTube channel, Ken Michaels Radio. It's been pretty busy lately. I just did an interview with Al Sussman, Tom Franjone, with Bruce Spicer. And uh, since I can't get enough of talking about Get Back, I'm sure I'll be doing more shows on Get Back. And we could always do more here, if you guys want. Um, It's mainly about Get Back, and we talk a bit about the passing of Ronnie Spector. That's on my YouTube channel, Ken Michaels Radio. I also did an interview with a guy named Mike Miller, who is... The lead singer and bass player for a Paul McCartney tribute band from New England called One Sweet Dream. And we do a number nine dream show on, on Paul, uh, where I have three different categories on Paul. And he's got to name his top three in each category. Again, that's a Ken Michaels radio. Please subscribe to that. My other um, podcast show, Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles. But There's that thing again.
0: There you go. Yeah, that's talk nice. More Talk. That's this, there's a thing in my head. Never
1: mind. <laughs> talk for talk, a solo Beatles videocast. Our next show will be next Monday, uh, which is January the 24th at 9 p.m. Eastern. It's a live broadcast and that it stays online. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, our favorite solo Beatles videos of the seventies, specifically from that decade. Okay. Just go to our YouTube channel. For Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast. for that, um, my syndicated radio program, Every Little Thing, which, by the way, come this March, celebrates its 40th anniversary, 40 years since I started doing Beatles radio programming. Um, my newest show will include a thematic set of charity recordings from the Beatles through the years and also a set of beetle and solo beetle demos and on my website kenmichaelsradio.com you will find a page for that show which lists all the radio stations that carry it when they broadcast it with links to their websites so you can stream them okay this is not uh, a show that you can listen to on demand you have to listen to live streams from the actual radio stations but that's on my website kenmichaelsradio.com where you'll also find weekly beatles trivia and you can win one out of ten great prizes every single week uh, on the website so if you can please uh please visit the website as often as you can that's it all right alan okay you can
2: reach me at Facebook either at Alan Cosen or Alan Cozen remixed um, you can reach all of us at uh, things we said today radio show at gmail.com um, send us an email if you have uh, uh, other Beatles misconceptions that you hear there it is again, that you hear a lot and that bother you and um, you want us to tackle, we'd be happy to. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter. We have uh, at, at Things We said Fab. Um, and uh, we have two Facebook pages for the show, uh, things we said today, Beatles, radio fans, and things we said today. Um, The shows are posted all over the place um, on on both of those Facebook pages, uh, on YouTube, where the video version of this lives. Uh, Audio versions live on uh, Podbean and uh, Apple iTunes, various other places. And um, that basically is it.
0: All right. Thank you. And as for me, uh, you want to send me an email directly just to me, and we could talk about these two guys. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but a few, few folks will check in, uh, especially those that maybe also listen to FUV, WFUV. My email address is DeVivo at wfuv.org. Uh, and as for me on the radio, I'm on, I can be heard Monday through Thursday nights starting at 10 p.m. And Saturday afternoons from 1 until 4 on WFUV 90.7 FM uh and we're on HD I don't know if anybody pays any attention to HD radio anymore um but um there are instances where for example WFUV like this past Saturday if I'm not mistaken um uh, we air Fordham University College men's College Basketball and there was a game Saturday afternoon uh which was on 90.7 FM but if you were in the car you could flip to HD2, and, and, uh, and there I was, spinning tunes or listen on our website. Anytime you can listen anywhere you are at WFUV.org on our app, uh, and check us out there. And on Facebook, I'm on Facebook. I have two pages, uh, Darren DeVivo. The other page is Darren DeVivo, um, WFUV DJ and Beatles podcaster. Uh, and uh, join both of them, covers all bases. And uh, we'll be connected. Uh, And this turned out to be a fantastic topic. I will admit before we started, I was uncertain, uh, but it was great. And we could do a part two. And actually, maybe we should at some point do a part two with some more things, uh, maybe that dig a little deeper than did Yoko break up the Beatles. Mm -hmm. But I thought that that one is kind of like the one that everyone brings up. So we should at least acknowledge it. But uh, again, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, So for Ken Michaels and for Alan Cosen, we will be back in a couple of weeks. We will see you then. Peace and love. Thanks for watching and listening.